If you open your Bibles with me to the final two chapters, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, that'll be our portion for today. Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And I don't know how long it's been since you've read or heard read the last two chapters of the Bible, or if you've ever done that, but it's the best possible part of this sermon. It takes about eight minutes. And I encourage you, whether you open your ears or whether you look at the page, to hear the voice of the Lord in the last two chapters of the Bible, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Translation. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as of a a stone of clear, crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates. In the gates, 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass, verse 22. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it. 
and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime for there is no night there. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean. No one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Verse six, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who's thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, God. Pierce the veil. Allow us to see the eternal light of Christ piercing through this shroud of darkness in which we now live. We pray together now as your people a special prayer for any of the unbelievers among us. For Christ's sake, would you capture them with the truth and hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Similarly, Lord, we pray a special prayer for your people who are battling against hopelessness and despair. Would you cause the blood-bought, rock-solid, eternal covenant promises of the gospel to wash over our souls? For us all, we pray, would you give us a sight of what you see in the face of your glorious Son? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, for eight Sundays, we've been trying to trace the meta-narrative of the Bible, the big overarching story of God's revelation of himself in the pages of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. What is the Bible basically about? What in faithful summary form is the Lord trying to say to us? The summary sentence of the whole Bible that we've been using in our Sing God's Story sermon series comes from Dr. Easley's biblical history book. And that sentence is the Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his glory. Today's sermon, we finally made our way to the full revelation, realization of what that means. What will it be like for those who belong to Christ forever? When the truth of these final two chapters of the Bible grip a local church, something wonderful happens. Paul told the local church at Colossae, the Colossians, what happens to a body of believers just like us who are captured by the eternal promises of the gospel of Jesus. What happens to a church like ours when we start to believe Revelation 21 and 22? Paul said it this way to the Colossians. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of two things, your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Because they heard that the gospel had promises for heavenly hope. They therefore put all their faith in Jesus and they loved the saints. That is the people who put their faith in Jesus. When a church is captured by these eternal promises, that's what happens to them until we see God face to face in Christ. Today's sermon, two chapters, has one point. The point's long and wordy, but many of you have endured my preaching for a long time, so here it comes. Eternity for God's people will be the presently unimaginable bliss of being absorbed into Christ's unending kingdom of joy. Eternity for God's people will be the presently unimaginable bliss of being absorbed into Christ's unending kingdom of joy. We learn that Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of joy in many places in the Bible. Let me give you two. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again and from joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He wasn't sorry to lose what he did have for what he gained. The kingdom of heaven is full of that kind of joy. Romans 14 says, for the kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It is like righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So Dr. Kendall Easley, biblical history book, served as our outline for this series, the way he broke down the eight parts of Genesis to Revelation. He wrote this, think about the kingdom of joy. Think about an unending, presently unimaginable, kingdom of joy. Easily wrote, the kingdom of God will last forever. God's people will be filled with everlasting joy. God's glory will be magnified as his redeemed people fully enjoy him forever without any taint of evil. This is visualized in the last two chapters of Revelation that describe a new heaven and new earth, the people of God are compared to a great and glorious city, as well as to a wonderful bride. God's servants will reign with him forever and ever, and they will serve him gladly, fully beholding his face. So I wanna say something to you and your religion. 
your Christianity. If the God that you know does not promise you exuberant joy forever, then forsake that God right now and thrust your soul into the arms of the God of Scripture in Christ. Look at these people and look at this future place they will inhabit. The people and the place. In one phrase almost, the people are called the bride of Christ and those people are called a heavenly city or that's the place that the bride will dwell. Look at it. Verse 9 of chapter 21. Revelation 21, 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. What happens in verse 10? He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. These two verses toggle between that picture, the wife of the lamb and the holy city. So which is it, bride or city? Yes, it's a bride city. It's a people in a place with their God. A people together, all belonging to the same divine husbandman. Now, guys, you got to think about this biblical imagery that we're part of the bride of Christ. Listen to the Old Testament prophets tell you about the divine husbandman. Isaiah 54, fear not, for you will not be put to shame and do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker whose name is the Lord of hosts and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of all the earth. Just try to picture, I said, presently unimaginable kingdom of eternal joy. Just try to picture the bride of Christ in the heavenly city, the glorified church in Revelation is beyond description. What John saw and wrote down in the pages of Revelation are spirit-inspired words. He wrote, we believe here at Grace Church, what the Holy Spirit gave him to write. But these words, spirit-inspired, are accommodated to our finite limitations and categories. The words are true, but our minds cannot fully conceive of the glories that they entail. One of John's favorite words in the book of Revelation is L-I-K-E, like. When I saw this, it was like that. Now I want to help wash this book over your soul so that we can get to a point. Revelation 1.10, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. 113, one like a son of man. 114, his hair was white like wool, like snow, like a flame of fire in his eyes. 116, his face was like a sun shining in its strength. You see how he's grasping in human categories that we can understand and God the Spirit is accommodating us in this description. It's, it's like this. Chapter four, verse three. He who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. 6.14, the sky was split apart like a scroll. 8.10, burning like a torch. 9.7, the appearance of the locust was like horses, crowns like gold. Revelation 10.1, his face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. Chapters 10 to 22, like a leopard, like a bear, like a beast, like a harpist, like a sea of glass mixed with fire, like frogs, like a thief, like a great millstone, like a loud voice, like the sound of many waters, like the sand on the seashore, like a very costly stone. Then we get to chapters 21 and 22, which we read. Do you see what God's doing? It's presently unimaginable. We're talking about categories that our finite comprehensions cannot compute, which is exactly what Isaiah 64 says 
For from days of old, they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has they seen a God beside you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. In the New Testament, the writers of the pages of the New Testament pick up on these presently unimaginable categories. First Corinthians 2, just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard which have not entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. The connection between Revelation 21, 9 and 10 is the connection between the bride of Christ and the heavenly city. Dr. Easley again wrote, when God created mankind, he created them to live on the earth. The final state of the redeemed mankind is heaven come to earth. After the horrors of the day of the Lord and the last judgment, a new heaven and a new earth will come into being. Since the fall of mankind, all the way back in Genesis 3, which our catechism talked about, the scripture is filled with a pattern of God's people searching for the heavenly city. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, God's people are not looking here and now. They're looking to this future, eternal, heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is all about that connection. God's people searching for the celestial city. The book of Hebrews lays heavy emphasis on the connection between the theme of God's people setting their eyes on a heavenly city. Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews eleven thirteen. all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. What are we seeing in this heavenly city, bride of Christ, pattern in the old and new covenant? Easily said, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, is contrasted to Babylon, the harlot city. But the language of this new Jerusalem, this heavenly city, quote, goes beyond imagination. The wonders of eternity that we cannot presently conceive. And though we can't fully conceive, easily points out in chapter 21, 22, there's at least four things about this city that we can see that should prompt us to put our hope entirely in the grace that's going to be brought to us when Jesus is revealed. The four things we see are perfect security. Every human heart longs for that. You want to be safe. You want to be secure. You want to be able to rest. This heavenly city has walls and gates and foundation stones that picture perfect security. No evil in, only holiness abiding, perfectly secure. But not only perfect security, perfect splendor. No need of the sun or moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God illumines it. Its lamp is the Lamb. 
no curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb in it. Everybody seeing his face. No, no nighttime. No need of the lamp, uh, light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Perfect security with perfect splendor. Added to that, perfect accommodations. An enormous cube-like shaped room, city room for all the redeemed in the new Holy of Holies. And finally, perfect worship. All the people watered and fed, moral and spiritual protection forever, nourished by God's river, fed with God's tree of life. This renewed earth easily went on to say, will be so glorious because the Lamb is going to replace the sun and moon as its source of light. There won't be any temple needed. The entire place will be where God dwells. Kings and nations of the earth will bring all their splendor into it. Sinners are going to be excluded from participating in this city or threatening any of God's people. So what is this going to be, John's word, like? This is about as close as I know how to get it in one sentence. The one true God will be seen in Christ. That sighting of the Lord Jesus Christ will be enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. All those who see the one true God in Christ by the power of the Spirit will abide in that exuberantly joyful experience with all of God's people forever. In Revelation 21.3, John picks up on this old covenant promise about God being with his people forever. God dwelling among them. Revelation 21, 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they will be his people and God himself will be among them. We've been doing our little eight part series of the Bible, but that should start ringing some bells for people that know something about the Old Testament. Leviticus 26 God said, I will make my dwelling among you. I will walk among you. I will be your God. You will be my people. Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know me. I am the Lord. They will be my people. I will be their God. They will return to me with their whole heart. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in them. On their heart, I will write it. I will be their God. They will be my people. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit in them. I will take out the heart of stone. I will give them a heart of flesh. They will walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. Zechariah chapter eight, the Lord of hosts says, behold, I'm going to save my people from the land of the east, from the land of the west. I will bring them back. They will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people. And I will be their God in truth and righteousness. The New Testament writers are saying, do it, Lord. Second Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Hebrews 8:10. for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, says the Lord, I'll put my law into their mind. I will write it on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people fully, finally realized when we are with Jesus forever. This is the best way we can say it. Revelation 22, three, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of the lamp of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they'll reign forever and ever. I'm about to get to five applications and we're going to put a bow on this little eight part series.
in my understanding of the book of Revelation, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for the eternity I've just been trying to briefly describe to you biblically is imminent. I don't believe there's anything left to be fulfilled for Christ to return before I finish this sentence. And I believe that's been the case for the last 2,000 years. Since the close of the New Testament, the return of Christ imminent, maybe not necessarily immediate, that's in God's timing, but from God's vantage point, He hasn't waited long. It's only been two days. 2 Peter 3, 8, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. It's just been two days since Jesus got up from the dead. God hadn't waited long. But why is he waiting now? Bunch of reasons. There's some sober reasons. The New Testament is crystal clear that one of the reasons Jesus hasn't come back yet is because more enemies need to be born. He's waiting from that time onward until his enemies become a footstool for his feet. That's one reason. But another reason, redemption. God desires all men to come to repentance. He's not slow concerning His promise, but He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's another big reason He's waiting. What's our application? Trying to do this quick meta-narrative overview of the whole Bible. What are the bedrock truths of the whole story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation? I believe they're seen The main applications of the Bible are seen in the last two chapters of the Bible. I'll give you five of them to conclude our look at the whole story of Scripture. These will all come straight out of Revelation 21 and 22. Number one, we say it like this a lot. Please hear it fresh as if for the first time. There is a God and you are not Him. Worship God. Let your eyes fall on Revelation 22, 8. I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of the brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. That's an imperative. That's a command. Worship God. At the end of the day, you're created for worship. In fact, not only are you at a worship service right now, you never leave one. You're always worshiping. You can't turn the switch off. God created you for worship. That's why you are made. The question is not, are you worshiping? The question is, what is the object of your worship? To what do you render praise? The scriptures are clear that Christ Jesus is to be the locus, the location of the focus of your worship. When Jesus stepped out of eternity and came to the sin-torn world, God the Father did not get jealous when people started worshiping Him. In fact, He commanded all the heavens to direct their worship to Him. Hebrews 1.6 When God the Father brings the firstborn, that's the Lord Jesus, into the world, that's the incarnation, He, that's God the Father, said, let all the angels worship Him. Satan won't be too riled up if you say, God, God, God. But you start giving all your praise... To the God-man, the Lord Jesus, the quintessential revelation of God, God in the flesh, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. If you've seen Him, you have seen God. If you give Him your praise, you'll stir up a hornet's nest in hell. There is a God. You are not Him. Worship God. That's the number one application, I think, of the whole Bible. Number two. The one true God will be enjoyed by his people forever. Again, Revelation 22, 3. No longer any curse. 
The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His bondservants will serve Him. Look at verse 4. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of the lamp or light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. I had that passage copied and pasted seven times in my sermon notes for today. The one true God will be enjoyed by His people forever. So abundant. So infinite are the blessings that are yours in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours in Christ. So abundant and so infinite are the Ephesians 1.3 blessings that are bound up for you in Christ Jesus that you as an individual believer will have the privileges of the full divine inheritance as if you were God's only son. Look at verse 7 of Revelation 21. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. God's not excluding his daughters here. He's speaking of the biblical inheritance categories in this language. The firstborn son was the rightful heir, inheritor of everything that belonged to the father. And God is saying in Revelation 21, 7, he's so infinite in his abundance that the one who inherits, quote, inherits these things means that he will be their God and that person will be his son. You individually as a believer in Christ will get so much of God's blessing to you in Christ. It will be as if you were his only son. Look at Revelation 21, 16. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. Heaven's going to be one gigantic cube city when it comes to the new Jerusalem. But if Jerusalem is just a city and not all of it, which is what I think God is saying, and I don't think he meant for us to do all kind of math equations with every number in the Bible, but if Jerusalem is a city in the new heaven and new earth and not all of it and the city is on top of a mountain and the city on top of the mountain is 1500 miles cubed then the new heaven and new earth will take up the space of about the surface of our earth to the surface of our moon spherically for that city to fit on top of that mountain 1500 miles to put that in perspective we got some people in the room today that drove from about an hour in every direction some from the west over in Arkansas and some from the south down in Mississippi and some from the north way up north of our city and some from far out east so some people traverse the whole city to get here but this heavenly city, to traverse it in one day, you would go from where you're sitting right now to Las Vegas. That's 1,500 miles to the west. And from Vegas to Minneapolis, that'd be 1,500 miles from there. This won't fit in the U.S., so you've got to track over the same place a couple times to make this work. You would go from Minneapolis to Tampa, and you would go from Tampa to El Paso. But that's only two-dimensional. It's cubed. 2116, its length and width and height are equal. That's just the city. The priesthood of the believer means that you will never be able to escape the fullest possible manifestation of the presence of God. Why is it cubed? Because it's the true 
Holy of Holies. The true Ark of the Covenant, this cubed place in the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was fully manifested in the Old Testament, now in this heavenly city, inculcates, contaminates the entire place. The whole place is a holy of holies. All the people in it are priests unto God, direct access to him. So the second main application of the whole Bible, I think, is the one true God will be enjoyed by his people forever. There's a God and you're not him and all of his people will enjoy him forever. And number three, not one of those for whom Jesus died, will be missing from the eternal church. This is precious, chapter 21, verse 12. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. You go down to verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you have the 12 Old Testament tribes and the 12 New Testament apostles. I believe that represents the totality of the redeemed from the Old and the New Covenant. All 12 tribes, all 12 apostles, all focused on Christ. This is all of God's redeemed people, all in one place. Not one of those for whom Jesus died will be missing from the eternal church. And yes, I call it church because that's what God calls it. The heavenly assembly in Hebrews 12, 23 is called the church, the ecclesia of the firstborn, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's why we sing around here. Lines like William Cooper's, there is a fountain filled with blood. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power until all the ransom church of God be saved to sin no more. We believe that. Not one of those for whom Jesus died will be missing from the eternal church. Number four, the ungodly will suffer the penalty of eternal destruction. This is sobering and true. Chapter 21, verse 27 Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Where will the wicked be? Where will they go? Second Thessalonians 1, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The ungodly will suffer the penalty of eternal destruction. According to the book of Revelation, under the wrath of the lamb, the second death. There is a God and you are not him. Worship God. The one true God will be enjoyed by his people forever. Not one of those for whom Jesus died will be missing from the eternal church. The ungodly will suffer the penalty of eternal destruction. And fifth and finally, God has provided all that you need to enjoy him forever. If you could take the first and the last application, I think that's the summary of the whole Bible. There is a God and you are not him. Worship God. And God has provided all that you need to enjoy him forever. Chapter 21, verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. You know what no temple means, right? No more sacrifices. Why is there no temple? Because there's no need for a sacrifice. Why is there no need for a sacrifice? It's finished. At Calvary on the cross, when the Lord Jesus yielded up his spirit and said, It is finished. He meant, Revelation 22, 12 to 16, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. Blessed are those 
who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside, that's everybody else. The dogs, the sorcerers, immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. God has provided all that you need to enjoy him forever. The reason there's no temple and no sacrifice is because God looked on the sacrifice of his eternal son. And as astonishing as this is, and if it doesn't feel astonishing, you've never seen your sin. As astonishing as this is, it is true. God looked on the sacrifice of his eternal son and counted that one offering of the life of Christ adequate for the forgiveness of the sins of all who would trust in him. Free grace for the guilty. Washing your robes in the blood of the Lamb. God has provided all that you need to enjoy Him forever. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The Spirit, that's the third person of the Trinity. The Bride, that's all God's people, are singing over you now. Come. And if you hear the voice of the Spirit and the testimony of His church, they're saying to you, come. And if you're thirsty because your soul is parched, because you've been dipping your needy soul into the cisterns of this world that'll never satisfy you, if you're thirsty, just come to Christ. If you need water that'll satisfy you and quench your spiritual thirst so that you never thirst again. In fact, it'll create in you rivers of living water that gush out of you. If you want your thirst quenched, your spiritual thirst quenched, there's one condition. You can't pay for it. No cost. You don't earn this. You don't pay for this. That's merit and wage. This is gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus for all who will believe. That's why we sing around here Horatio Spafford's familiar lines. Have you thought about these? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. The Spirit right now is saying to you, unbeliever, come, no money, no cost, just thirst quenching, spiritually satisfying, eternal joy in God, with God, with his people forever, just come. The Bible's about this. The Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his glory. If you don't get anything else from today's sermon, please. I hear preachers say that a lot. I'm like, well, why'd you say all that other stuff? And I thought about not writing that sentence in my sermon notes. But I really mean this. If you don't get anything else, get this. The very same Jesus who descended from heaven and lived the life you were supposed to and died the death you were supposed to, vindicated as the sinner's savior by God Almighty, by being raised from the dead as proof that he is God, as proof that his sacrifice was acceptable to God, even for sinners like you and me, and as proof that he will never forsake anybody who puts their faith in him. This same Jesus, who's now ascended to heaven, here's what I want you to give if you don't get anything else. He's coming again. <laughs>
Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. See, here at Grace Church, we have a constraining ambition for you to know this God too. To say everything I just said, God always says it best. He said it this way in Titus, the grace of God has appeared. That's Jesus. Bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let nobody disregard you. Would you join me in prayer as I pray two passages of scripture before we sing that glorious rhetorical question, is he worthy? Father, you said that right now we are beloved children of God and it has not appeared as what we will be. But we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And you said, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we ask for this church, for the individuals of it, for all of our friends and guests that are with us, that you would prepare our minds for action. You would give us grace to do that, that we would keep sober in spirit and that we would fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.